1: Five, four, three,
0: two, one. But who's counting, right?
1: His name is Major. Hello, oh,
0: ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital.
1: Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
0: Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better.
1: Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> The answer is yes.
0: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. This week we are going to have a candid, concise, and I hope comprehensive conversation about the war on terrorism, Afghanistan, a little bit about Iraq, and what America has or hasn't achieved in the 20 years since 9-11. This is a harrowing weekend for our country. Most of you will be listening to this program right around either the day before, the day of, or the day after the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 atrocities. Our guest is General David Petraeus. General, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Good to be back, Major. Thank you. First question, General. Did we lose the war in Afghanistan, and if so, why?
1: Well, we certainly didn't achieve the outcome that many of us, and if not most of us, perhaps, had hoped for. Um, seeing the Taliban take control of the country, from a government that, however imperfect, was at least democratically elected and certainly allowed a lot of freedoms uh, and welcomed us uh, as an ally and a partner uh, in the continuing war against Islamist extremists. So seeing the Taliban replace them obviously uh, is frankly the opposite of what we, I think, had all hoped to achieve over time, noting that the outcome was brought about by our withdrawal From that war, uh, not by our defeat on the battlefield, if you will. And I don't think it was the kind of withdrawal that was uh, inevitable. I don't think it was something like Vietnam. I mean, I've talked at length with Henry Kissinger, for example, about the position in which he and Nixon found themselves uh, in Vietnam, where there was no other course than to have to withdraw, that the turmoil on our streets, the demonstrations, the opposition in Congress and around the country was so fierce uh, that there was really no other way out. Um, Afghanistan, there was an alternative approach. Uh, A number of us proposed it. Uh, Obviously, that was not the course of action that was chosen. Um, And in very short order, um, this development validated something I think I said on your show a couple of months ago that I think yep. that we would come to regret the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, and also that there was the potential for a, a psychological collapse of the Afghan security forces once they knew that the U.S. was really gone, our air power was no longer there, and that their air force could not deliver reinforcements, emergency resupply, and close air support in the wake of the contractors being withdrawn. So I see this as a, as a heartbreaking development. Um, I think it's a tragic uh, outcome. And in fact, I, I actually do think that it is disastrous to see a group that is allied with Al-Qaeda, a group that f- refused to remove Al-Qaeda from their soil. Remember, we gave them an ultimatum after the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks, and it wasn't until they refused to take action that we went out, went into Afghanistan and, of course, toppled that regime Eliminated the sanctuary from Afghan soil some nine or so years later, I guess, nine and a half years later, brought mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden to justice. But in the meantime, always used that country as a superb platform for the greater war on terror in that region. And that, of course, included Western Pakistan, where, of course, again, Osama bin Laden was located Right. when the raid was conducted from Afghan soil and ended back on Afghan
0: soil. We'll get to Pakistan in a second. In a word, was the withdrawal bungled?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know how you can look at what transpired um, and say that that was a smooth, well-planned operation. Now, to be fair to the the heroic individuals who went in to carry out what turned out to be a very, very substantial airlift, you know, over 123,000 Individuals in a very short period of time, and again, that was truly extraordinary. Uh, right, they did it, their jobs, but they were put they in. Jobs, but they, they
0: were put in a very difficult situation, and I hear you saying an unnecessarily difficult situation. What could have been decided differently that wasn't?
1: Well, first of all, what could have been decided is that you don't withdraw, that you sustain a sustainable commitment, which I thought we had actually reached. The irony is that we finally were able to achieve. The kind of commitment that, in fact, Vice President Biden had, in a sense, argued for back in 2009 when President Obama decided instead to send 30,000 additional forces uh, into the country. Um, This was only 3,500 troops, and that's if you have the most expansive counting rules of all. Uh, Yes, we had a lot of drones. We had a lot of air power. uh, We had a lot of intelligence fusion. We had a lot of intelligence assets, officers, and everything else diplomats, development workers and so forth. But again, that was very sustainable. We hadn't had a battle loss in in 18 months. You know, the, the fact is that in recent years, we have lost more men and women in uniform in training accidents than we have on battlefields. And it seemed so, to me that that was a sustainable approach. So don't don't yeah, withdraw decision have, one. That would have been the real
0: alternative. But again, right, But that once, the, once the date was set, where once the date was circled on the calendar, and the president did that, and the president is authorized to do that, what should have happened Absolutely, that didn't? Yes.
1: And and when he does that, by the way, and I've been in a position where mm-hmm. my advice was not fully adopted by a president. You submit right. smartly, and you move out and, and and try to achieve the mission that you've been given with the resources that have been provided. Um, well, then the problem it was clearly that we're doing this right at the really still the outset of what was predicted to be the most difficult fighting season since we toppled the Taliban back in 2001. So, I mean, another alternative was, well, at least if you're going to pull out, wait until the snow is one or two feet deep so that they can't race all the way to, to Kabul. Um, keep the contractors, keep the air power going and so forth, because it was really the collapse of the Afghan Air Force, perhaps more than anything else, that convinced the Afghan soldiers that no one is coming to the rescue. And when that happens, they do what Afghans have done throughout history, and that is cut a deal. Keeping in mind, by the way, that 66,000 Afghan uh, soldiers died uh, during the course of our involvement there, that's about 27 times our battlefield losses. Right. So, but again, the problem was you really have then, and I think the president was accurate to say this was going to be a mess no matter how, when you reach that point. Because for three administrations, especially the previous administration, we had failed to uh, pro- process the special immigrant visa applications. You and I have talked about this before. Yes. These are the battlefield interpreters. Mm-hmm. To qualify for a special immigrant visa, you have to have served at least two years on the ground with our men and women in uniform. We estimated there were somewhere around 18,000 or so of them before all this started, times probably three family members each. So it's a considerable number. But the bureaucratic process was so sluggish, it really didn't move much at all under the previous administration. and Even in this administration, it was still very, very slow until right at the end when they tried to kick it into high gear. And you couldn't do that. So what was, number one, the systems didn't really work other than just for U.S. citizens. Then you had everybody else realizing that the system doesn't work, so let's work around the system. And that's how you end up with planes landing in Qatar that weren't cleared for landing there, that with manifests of passengers who weren't, uh, you know, no one knew what the follow on destination was and all the rest of this. So what you had was, you know, frankly, I don't know how you can describe the situations around the entry control points as anything other than chaotic. And we added to that in part because of the generosity. Uh, of spirit in our declarations that we will take care of all of those who are in jeopardy because of their service with us, not just the battlefield interpreters now, not just our sources and and so forth for the agency. Uh, But now it's virtually anybody who worked for the U.S. at at any point along the way, and therefore is in jeopardy because of that service and extending even to uh, our allies on the battlefield and so forth. So it became a very, very large number of hopefuls all of whom are trying to squeeze through that gate, yep. most of whom didn't have the paperwork to enable them to do that, uh, nor the clearance. And it, and it was, at the end of the day, a chaotic situation. And tragically, that then allowed the Islamic State to take advantage of a crowd, which we saw so many times over the right. years at the height of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, that Islamist extremists are willing to blow themselves up to take us with them. And tragically, there was one of those there and, of course, 13 great young men and women in uniform and then nearly 200 uh, citizens, Afghan civilians, innocent Afghan civilians were killed as well.
0: On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about why there are still Americans and those who assisted us in that long campaign in Afghanistan still in that country. I'm Major Garrett General David Petraeus as our special guest back for segment two in just one second.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. General David Petraeus is our guest. General, uh, there are still Americans in Afghanistan. There are still those who assisted us in that long campaign. And you said a moment ago the airlift was about 120, 123,000. When I talked to people who were close to the special immigrant visa community, they thought with those who qualified and their family, the number was anywhere from sixty to 65,000. How can we have 120, 123,000 out and still those we prioritized, or at least theoretically prioritized, Americans and others still there?
1: Well, that number, first of all, includes a lot of coalition country evacuations. So it's not just purely U.S. Mm-hmm. And then by no means is it U.S. that were all approved on some category of visa. Uh, you had commendably uh, an organization with which I am affiliated and support the American University of Afghanistan, it found a way to get a number of the women uh, out of Afghanistan. And you, you multiply that times many different groups, all of whom had champions in the United States, all of whom were contacting their members of Congress, uh, the State Department, even individuals literally by name inside the wire there at the airfield to try to get them through. And ultimately, you end up with an awful lot of people that were not either U.S. citizens, Greek card holders or SIV uh, holders. And in fact, the State Department, I believe earlier this week, said that the majority uh, of the SIV holders and their family members did not make it out. Right. And again, it's just in, in part because the system just wasn't set up to do this. And the way the system gets
0: set up is is separate from the priority the president places on it. And one thing I would say in watching all of this transpire, the president, as the White House often says, well, he signed an executive order. Yes, he did. But it's clear to me, and the evidence is irrefutable, that the president did not get on the phone and shout at the top of his lungs, metaphorically or literally, to the State Department, move this process along in the springtime, which he could have. And And some of this would have been avoided, it seems to me.
1: Well, if it had started at the beginning of the administration, and again, another organization no one left behind, sought to make this case, as have many others. The Iraq, Afghanistan Veterans of America is very committed to those who served, again, side by side uh, with our soldiers on the ground and so forth. And there's just never been the sense of urgency about this issue. And of course, you had COVID that intervened at one point in time stop the uh, interview process. It's as if everything was conspiring against this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in the result, frankly, was uh, almost, again, predictable.
0: But was it was it general, in your opinion, a catastrophic decision to abandon Bagram? Air base? Well, it, again, if you keep
1: Bagram, you have to keep
0: thousands of troops,
1: not thousands, but you have to keep a very right. substantial complement of troops on the ground. Um, And now if you're going to keep Bagram as well as Kabul, keep in mind the the advantage of Kabul is also its disadvantage, but the advantage of Kabul is it's accessible to the bulk of those that we're trying to get out. Uh, Because many of the people that were were fleeing the Taliban made their way to Kabul. uh, And same with U.S. citizens, the vast majority of them are located in Kabul and all the rest. So uh, if you then have to get from Kabul to Uh, Bagram, you know, that's a well over an hour drive, depending on the security of the route at any given time. Um, And ultimately, you'd have had crowds there as well. Now, Bagram is such a spectacular, you know, place of concrete. Uh, It's just a massive base and you could park all kinds of planes and other equipment on the ground there. You wouldn't have anywhere near the congestion that you have on this little single strip that is Cobble Airfield. Uh, but at the end of the day, you'd have the challenge of how do you get them out there? Do you now have right. to heli- now you have to have helicopters from right. Kabul Airfield, and you'll still somewhere you still have an entry control point. Somewhere you still have the problem of trying to communicate. So I mean, you know, to be fair to with the individuals that were doing this, they would send a text message with a code uh, to the U.S. citizens, and they'd say, you know, show this code on your cell phone as you approach the entry control point. It's your turn, and you know instead of 50 or 80 people doing that, all of a sudden the code goes, goes viral. Right. Everybody has the code in the crowd. So again, it was a very, very difficult circumstance and the sheer pressure of time and, and desperation of the people um, led to, again, a situation that can only be described as chaotic. But it really is the result, you know, first of the unexpected collapse, uh, right. obviously is, is, a, is the proximate cause But it's really the result of of administration's worth of inactivity uh, on the special immigrant visa issue in particular. And then the very late-minute declaration that we are going to expand, you know, anybody else who feels affected by this and is threatened because of their work with us. But by the way, the small print on that, I believe, says you have to apply at a consulate outside (laughs) Afghanistan, which is not exactly helpful to those that are clustered around the entry control point.
0: Uh, In preparation for this, General, I asked someone who you know very well and respect deeply, I imagine, David Martin, our national security correspondent at the Pentagon, if he wanted to suggest a question to you. And he did. He wanted to know, from your vantage point, did the rapid collapse of the Afghan government in the end basically prove that this would never have worked? A U.S.-backed government, in our image, was always a pipe dream, and it was inevitably going to fall apart whenever that air security contractor security, other kinds of things were taken out of the equation?
1: Not necessarily. I think it is a very, very good question. It's typical that David would ask, I think, such a penetrating question. I do have enormous respect for him uh, in years and years of interaction with him as well. Um, I don't think so. But again, you know, we're only 20 years into this. Keep in mind that it took more than a few decades for our own country to get to where it has. Mm -hmm. Uh, Keep in mind that 70 years into our own existence, we had a bloody civil war. The disagreement was so substantial. There was another century or more of the after effects of that civil war. Um, Reconstruction, the Jim Crow, the separate but equal, all the rest of this. Uh, So again, we should be a little bit humble, I think about sort of demanding that you ought to be able to take a country from the seventh century, which is where the Taliban had it and it's five or seven years of, of, of leading it in the mid-1990s until 2001. Um, and, you know, being Switzerland or something like that. Uh, I mean,
0: so, not to put too fine a point on it, General, as you will know, it took decades of time and effort in South Korea.
1: I, You know, it's a very, very good point. Um, we should remember that the South Korean government for many decades actually was composed of um, former Army strongmen uh, who were, in fact, uh, oftentimes uh, found out on corruption and a variety of other uh, issues. So, again, as I mentioned, you know, this was a very imperfect government. Uh, it had a lot of shortcomings. There were an amazing number of areas that were frustrating. I lived through that as the commander there and then watched as a CIA director and also a central command. In mm-hmm. fact, we brought in H.R. McMaster as a one-star to establish uh, a joint task force with Afghans, with President Karzai's approval, to identify corruption. And we took down the Chief of Staff of the Air Force with Karzai's approval, the Surgeon General uh, of Afghanistan, the commander of the military hospital there. I mean, again, there's a lot of imperfection and shortcomings, but I'd certainly much rather see it in Kabul Mm -hmm. than the Taliban, who have just named, as you probably saw, as their Minister of Interior, is Siraj uh, Haqqani, who's the head of the Haqqani network, which is very closely linked to al Qaeda. And and Siraj Haqqani, actually there's a $10 million bounty on his head uh, from one of our organizations. I think both FBI and state have him on their most wanted lists.
0: Right, there go the uh, aspirations of a Taliban 2.0. Let me ask you a here and now question, and we've got about a minute before you need to go to the break. There at the Bagram Air Base was a prison. It has been re- opened, obviously, by the Taliban. People have been let free. Do you have any anxiety, General, and should Americans that anyone who was there who wishes this country ill might have gotten out of the country and been on their way, be on their way to the United States?
1: I don't know about getting out of the country and getting on the way to the U.S., but it's certainly that and many other prison breaks because they broke up into every prison en route to Kabul. Uh, they swelled the ranks of the Islamic State to 2000 or so now. Uh, And we should be very concerned about that. And I know that the government, I'm sure, I know the president has emphasized to the CIA, to the military, we have to keep a very, very close eye on them, noting how much more challenging it will be to do it from offshore. And from Bagram and Kandahar air bases.
0: That's the voice of General David Petraeus. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout on our ongoing conversation about Afghanistan 20 years after 9-11 and the rest. I'm Major Garrett, back in just one minute.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our guest is General David Petraeus. General Petraeus, uh, conventional wisdom uh, is and can sometimes be a dangerous thing. But right now, what is settling in is a kind of a conventional wisdom that U.S. credibility is, if not in tatters, it is greatly diminished as a result of what has happened in Afghanistan. And that those in the extremist Islamist world are not only celebrating this, but seeing this as vindication of a long running, patient effort to defeat a great power. Your thoughts.
1: Well, I think, again, it's undeniable if you listen to what was said in the UK Parliament, listen to what some other major European leaders said in the wake of all of this and how bitter some of them are about it and the fact that they weren't consulted before the decision was announced and all the rest of that. Uh, Because, of course, the coalition wanted to stay by and large, and they were two and a half times what we were. Keep in mind, they had 8,500 troops on the ground. So, again, I think it's 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 not arguable. There is damage uh, to our credibility and to our reputation. And clearly the administration recognizes this and they know that in pursuing their most important objective, something that I think they have done quite admirably up until this point, uh, which is to craft a coherent, comprehensive whole of governments with an S on the end of government, meaning in other words, all of our allies and partners, policy for dealing with the most important relationship in the world, which is that between the US, its allies and partners, and China, Uh, trying to make it as mutually beneficial as is absolutely possible, but probably even more important, uh, trying to avoid any kind of misperception, miscommunication, mistake, that could lead to great power conflict. Um, And they will be very conscious that all of those allies and partners that they so skillfully over the first six or seven months of the administration, brought back together, some of them having had their feelings bruised by the previous administration. Um, Again, very well done. Asia first, the Quad, all of our other allies and partners there, uh, then shifting to Europe with the G7 meeting hosted by the UK, the summit, the EU summit, the NATO summit, even the meeting with Putin, uh, all of this leading up to what presumably would be an engagement with President Xi of China. Uh, And again, that was very, very impressively carried out. But clearly now there will be some damage in a way, and and they'll have to work extra hard to do that. And it will be done, as always, with with deeds, not just with words. Words will be needed, uh, but people will really be watching for the deeds. And and again, very interestingly, everywhere else where we are uh, watching, keeping an eye on, keeping pressure on, helping host nations deal with Islamist extremists, this administration has gotten it right. They sent troops back into Somalia, small numbers, very small, Mm -hmm. advise and assist and enable. Um, They kept troops in Iraq, yes, changing the mission or whatever. But it's, again, essentially helping the Iraqis keep an eye on the Islamic State, which just showed us with the suicide attack the other day in Kirkuk, that they are still lethal. Kept forces in northeast Syria where the previous administration pulled them out and then put them back in. Uh, Again, keeping an eye on the Islamic State. Uh, and then a whole variety of other places in Africa and various places in Asia, uh, again, maintaining the commitments that we have there. Um, and so right. by and large, I think that is all right and proper mm-hmm. in this case, which, of course, is front and center and, and is so visible. And frankly, again, so, uh, you know, frankly, disastrous uh, in its outcome and so, so rapidly uh, became that way. Uh, that there will have to be efforts to, to, to make up for that.
0: Right. So two questions. One, the president says over and over that the threat of terrorism has metastasized. It's no longer based either strategically or even theoretically in Afghanistan. Is he right about that? Question one. Question two, and David Martin assisted me in formulating this question as well. We both had it. He sat through more briefings than I did, but I've sat through many, many briefings over the past 20 years in which it was said over and over again, I believe with conviction, that boots on the ground in a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism posture is vital because you do night raids, and from night raids you not only get personnel, but you get cell phones, you get laptops, and from that you get operational intelligence that you cannot get any other way. We're not going to have that anymore, and this over-the-horizon idea of counterterrorism in Afghanistan – I don't know if it works or doesn't work, but it doesn't fit with what I heard and what David Martin heard for 20 years.
1: Well, it makes it vastly more difficult without question. The president is correct that the threat has metastasized. Uh, And as I just mentioned, I think the administration has responded appropriately in all these different locations where that is the case, noting that none of them appear to pose the kind of 9-11 style or 9-11 magnitude threat. And I don't think we'll see that out of Afghanistan in the near term, but we sure better be watching it for the mid and longer term. We saw what the Islamic State was able to do when it established a caliphate in northeastern Syria and northern Iraq, and was literally projecting, uh, uh, inspiring, directing attacks uh, against the countries of our most important NATO allies. Uh, And... The Islamic State, again, 2,000 fighters, that is a significant number. That's vastly more than they've had out there uh, at any time. It's probably larger than what is left of core Al Qaeda in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region as well. But you're exactly right that what you want uh, is to be able to get detainees who then can share information with you you, if, if you interrogate properly, which does not include enhanced interrogation techniques, Um, and also this pocket litter, cell phones, hard drives, all the other information which can be exploited very, very rapidly and which enables you to keep pressure on the Islamist extremists. And by the way, in Afghanistan, also in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, generally these operations are being carried out by host nation forces, where we are perhaps providing intelligence support maybe some overhead imagery support during the operation, right. maybe some close air support of things go, go poorly, but not us necessarily doing it on the front lines or being the ones who are kicking in the door. Obviously, just so my that's audience no understands, long,
0: that's not, that's not happening anymore. That's, that's over. Right.
1: That is not happening in Afghanistan. And of course, it's not just that we've lost the base in Afghanistan. That is our last source of bases in Central and South Asia. We have no bases anywhere else in that entire region. And yet, again, you have the Islamic State and you have Al-Qaeda, and that's core Al-Qaeda. They're still there, and we will have to keep a very, very close eye on them. But just to give one quick example, uh, a Reaper drone, which is the coin of the realm, could spend, you know, 50 to 60 or even a bit more, depending on how the aircraft is configured, percent of its flight time just flying to and from Afghanistan, from Qatar or the United Arab Emirates.
0: Right. It would be shorter if would would those have left. And did they leave from Bagram? We had them
1: all over. It was yeah. Bagram um, and, and elsewhere. Exactly. And one, of the, one of the big, uh, you know, big ideas here is that you don't want to commute to the fight.
0: No, um, precisely. Be in the let, me ask you, let me ask you a broad question. Mary Walsh, David Martin's producer, suggested this to me. She said, because, and you know this because you live this, commanders rotated through Afghanistan. It has been said by some, perhaps cynically, that it wasn't a 20-year war. It was a one-year war in Afghanistan fought by 20 different commanders.
1: Well, first of all, over time, the commanders stayed longer and longer and longer. Scott Miller, for example, the last commander, I think his tour as commander was two and a half years, and he had probably already spent somewhere between three and four years uh, when he was in the special mission unit community, then with JSOC, and then with uh, another special operations.
0: JSOC Joint Special Operations Command, yes. So that's
1: our standing uh, joint task force. for. But you know
0: the spirit of that question, General.
1: No, I do know the spirit. And to be fair, the question is exactly right, much more right on Afghanistan than it was Iraq, because Iraq, we were rotating one year in, one year out, one year back in. I mean, I did four years total uh, in just the first five or six years of the war. I mean, I was in Iraq for the bulk of my time as a two, three and four star general um, with a 15 minute, 15 month break, uh, seemed like 15 minutes to my family, 15 month break as a three star. Um, so again, but Afghanistan, because the troop numbers were never as large, the demand was never quite as high or the demand was there, but this, we couldn't provide the numbers. Uh, There was a bit more of that. And I think that's a valid. I have pointed out, look, Major, that we didn't get the inputs right in Afghanistan because we shifted focus very quickly to Iraq and we didn't get it right early on. We had too light a footprint, didn't get the organizational architecture. So we are always shooting behind the target. Uh, In fact, you know, I was asked to do an assessment.
0: Uh, General, hold that thought. Hold that thought, General, because I want to get to it. I don't want to jump on it for the break. Let me go to break and we'll come back for that assessment on the other side of it. Major Garrett, General David Petraeus, back in one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. We had to stop General Petraeus right in mid-thought to get to our break. General Petraeus, your last words were, you did an assessment. Please continue.
1: Yeah, when when I completed the three-star tour in Iraq, that was a 15 and a half month tour. Secretary Rumsfeld asked me to come home through Afghanistan. So I took a team and went over there to do an assessment at his request. Um, And we looked at the train and equip mission and all the other activities that were ongoing, having just built up the train and equip mission. Uh, in Iraq, and keeping in mind that Iraq was started a good, you know, year and a half, two years after uh, Afghanistan, and I was astonished at how little the progress had been. And I realized that clearly we had shifted focus very early on, and as a result, uh, just hadn't built up all of the activities that were needed over time. And by the way, people argue that you know the problem began when we started nation building. Well, if you don't do nation building, you don't have host nation security forces to whom you can transition security tasks. You don't have government institutions. Again, however modest or Afghan good enough, at least you can hand off tasks that you're performing otherwise when you've taken down the entire regime and you're running the country. So I was really quite taken aback by that. Um, And I went back and laid it all out for him. And he was a bit, uh, I think, alarmed as well. and so many issues that, that arose there. I mean, for example, the police in, in their five or six weeks of training never actually shot a weapon. It was all being done by contractors. I'm not joking. In, they were in, Afghanistan. An hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. I asked, are you trying to prove the old guard or a police that can function in a counterinsurgency?" In any event, I when I went back as the commander, uh, about six months into that time, I said, you know what? We have finally gotten the inputs right in Afghanistan. This was nine years after we invaded. And by inputs, I'm getting at the right strategy, the right organizational architecture and all the components and issues. And this is very, very complex stuff. The right leaders and the preparation, the right preparation of our forces, because that gets at the issue of, you know, did you fight it 20 times over? Weren't you learning stuff? And the truth is we did start learning stuff and we incorporated it in our doctrinal manuals. Mm-hmm. education courses for our leaders in the whole road to deployment, uh, the, the pre-mission uh, rehearsal exercise conducted pre-deployment. All the rest of this was all overhauled enormously, but it took years to do it. It took too long.
0: But Let me ask you this.
1: The right level of resources for the first time after the Obama policy review, we
0: right. had
1: nearly what General McChrystal, who really got this started, by the way, he's the one who deserves the credit for getting that momentum going. I inherited that. Six months later, we were finally at the point. That's inputs now. That's not outputs.
0: Right. Um, So let me get to outputs, because on this program, not three or four weeks ago, we had Craig Whitlock, Whitlock on. You know who he is. He is behind the publication of the Afghanistan papers. And I asked him, is it your conclusion that the sum total of all those interviews done by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction was that there was understandable governmental embellishment about progress in afghanistan or was there outright lies it's his opinion and i want to ask your opinion general it was outright lies that the that the united states government basically said over and over again there is progress that wasn't being achieved and that the country that was sending its tax dollars and military personnel there was effectively being misled intentionally for some 20 years what do you think
1: Well, I think it is overly harsh. At at the very least, um, I went back and looked at everything I said publicly, all of my testimony before Congress, other statements that were made, uh, interviews and so forth, and also at what I said privately, because a lot of that has come out in the memoirs of people who were Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, uh, and so forth. Um, And I stand absolutely by what it is uh, that I said. And by the way, this is not, there's some, you know, Pentagon Papers kind of uh atmosphere around that the pentagon papers were highly classified yep um they were you know secreted out of the pentagon uh over a period of time copied you know single Mm -hmm. oh yeah this was that was a real bona fide i mean no one wanted those getting out the cigar special inspector
0: general for afghanistan
1: reconstruction all this stuff was public
0: um, well, not the, the, the well, interviews were not public and they fought the post for three years to make now, to, to, to see that they wouldn't become public.
1: Again, I, if you did an interview with the cigar, I mean, you have to assume that it's eventually going to get out. I sure Point, taken. Point taken. This wasn't taken. This wasn't, right. again, a, a little cell, secretive cell that's writing its analysis of the Vietnam War, you know, assuming that the only person who ever sees it is the secretary of defense. Right. Nick Romero. Um, in any event now. Were there people that got overly enthusiastic? Sure. Uh, Is there can doism in the military and also, frankly, in the rest of government? Sure. Are there occasionally political pressures that, you know, okay, we're at a certain juncture and okay, we're going to declare this, uh, you know, everybody on board with this? Sure, there is some of that. And undoubtedly, there were, again, there were tons of missteps, mistakes, shortcomings, setbacks, all the rest of that. We really believed and when I was the commander. One of our adages uh, on my counterinsurgency guidance was: "Be first with the truth when dealing with the press or anybody else. Don't put lipstick on pigs." So again, all I can say is I stand by what I said. Uh, I mean, I haven't gone back and looked at the right understood. Everybody else said and then cross-referenced it with you know how many Iraqi or how many Afghan security forces were there at that time. I don't think it is unreasonable to see that there is, again, a degree of, you know, people get attached to a project right. that they've spent years engaged in. No uh, doubt. And it's very hard to be detached. It's very hard to do something for two years and say, you know what? It was all useless. I don't know why I was engaged in this. That's just not human nature. And I don't think we should expect it to be. Um, Before I so let you go
0: uh, in this segment with to... Gerald, I want to run a question by you that is <clears> uh, lifted from the nine eleven commission report, which said in, in order to win after 9-11, there would have to be military and strategic successes, but America would also need to win hearts and minds. Have we?
1: Well, it's a mix. Um, and again, I have often, you know, I'm also asked a great question. Are we safer now than we were in pre nine eleven? The answer to that, I'm pretty confident, is yes. And it is a result in part because of the 9-11 commission, all the changes made to the intelligence community, creation of Critical elements that exist to literally ensure that information that is in the intelligence world is shared with law enforcement and vice versa and done legally, uh, so that information that should not be shared is not uh, all the rest of that. The capabilities that we have developed since then, many of which are going to be critical to the effort to keep an eye uh, on what is going on in Afghanistan and without which we would not be able to keep an eye on it. I remember, I remember I was the executive officer of the chairman of the joint chiefs when we knew Osama bin Laden was in eastern Afghanistan. In fact, we launched some cruise missiles as you may recall during the Clinton administration uh, into the location where we believed he was. Um, and you know it was very it was it was a bit of a black hole out there despite having some sources on the ground, despite having some other capabilities, nothing like what we have now. So I do believe that we are Safer now. Now, have we won hearts and minds? Some yes, and also probably lost some. In fact, one of the big, the most prominent question that I always had posted on the operations center, uh, staring at me or any other commander, asked: Will this operation or policy take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct or implementation? And if, and if the answer to that is no, you're supposed to go sit under a tree until the thought passes. The truth is that we did carry out both operations and policies, um, so sometimes in good faith, sometimes very mistakenly. I would point out, for example, firing the uh, Iraqi army without telling them what their future was created hundreds of thousands of young men with military training and weapons whose only incentive was to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it, and then compounding it by doing the same thing to the ruling political party all the way down to a level that was basically professors at mostly university, 110 of them, um, so without a reconciliation process. So again, you, that's a key question, and we have not always gotten that right, and no, not, nor have I individually. There are some actions that we took in good faith that we look back at after afterwards and ask with
0: mixed results and yes indeed yeah. uh for our radio audience we need to say farewell to our special guest dr david general david Petraeus. forgive me general uh please stay tuned though for those of you watching on cbsn and those on our podcast platforms for a very brief takeout i'll take a special that's been the takeout i'm major garrett we'll see you next week
1: CBS News. This
0: is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, our guest, General David Petraeus. General, I want to ask you a couple of things that are topical right now. Uh, The date we are recording this is September 9th. On this date, former President Trump said if we'd only had Robert E. Lee leading our troops in Afghanistan, we would have won. Your reaction?
1: Well, I think it's occasionally important to remember that, that Robert E. Lee, for all of the qualities and attributes that he has celebrated, lost. Uh, and he was defeated not just because of the industrial might of the North. He was lost because he per- pursued the wrong strategy. The only way he could win was by not losing uh, and, and by fomenting the kinds of draft riots uh, that we saw or that were seen in those days in New York and other cities. And that would lead, the, again, the only path to victory for the South was to have McClellan elected in 1864 instead of Lincoln. And McClellan had said his party platform was that he would sue for peace and the union would no longer exist as we knew it.
0: Right. Not lose for as long as you possibly could. Yeah.
1: Grant came East. Grant had a superior strategy. He won key victories in Atlanta and then in the Shenandoah Valley, and that sealed the victory for the president. It is accurate, as uh, Professor Brands described Grant in the title of his book, The Man Who Saved the Union, and he defeated Lee. Um, Lee gambled on on Gettysburg, tried for the knockout punch, uh, failed on day three, and the, the war, assuming you had, uh, again, good union leadership, which Grant more than provided, the war was then probably doomed.
0: Right. Let me ask you this. It's related. So, uh, Many would say not only did he lose, but he was on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of racial history in this country, though so he was not ardently pro-slavery, he was on the Confederate side. There is a debate running in Congress that I'm sure you're aware of, and General Milley, Mark Milley, has gotten criticism for being open to critical race theory as a component part or at least influencing at some level education at U.S. military academies. Your thoughts? I, I'm not that... F-
1: up to speed on what critical race theory is. I do think that, you know, that our future leaders should be aware of what social trends and developments uh, have led us to where we are at a given time. Um, I I don't know whether that means that you should or should not have uh, CRT candidly.
0: Is it appropriate for there to be a vaccine mandate for U.S. military personnel?
1: Absolutely. There are vaccine mandates for every other vaccine that you have to take, um, just as there are to go to, edu- to uh, elementary school as a kid. Once that vaccine was uh, you know, no longer experimental, uh, there's no question that it should be required. Just You know, before you deploy in the military, you go into gymnasium. And among the the various stations that you visit are all these different places. You know, which arm do you want to get jabbed? Um, and there's no A lot of jabs. There's no asking, would you like us or not? It's just which arm do you want it in? And that's the way we should approach this as well.
0: Uh, as you also might be aware, General, there are military academy advisory boards, and President Biden has asked for some Trump, recent Trump appointees to re- to resign. Is that politicizing these otherwise non political military academy advisory boards? My
1: sense is that the politicization started with actually the individuals that were put on those boards. By no means all of them. I mean, I think H.R. McMaster was very more than qualified. He is a quote distinguished graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and would have been a great member of the Board of Advisors. I think Jack Keene, General Jack Keene retired also. Uh, There's some others, Um, but there were a number of individuals on those boards who really had no expertise uh, in the institutions that they were reviewing. Um, And I think therefore appropriate. And, And unfortunately that meant that all of them had to go. And I say, unfortunately, because I think a number of the individuals actually were quite credible Uh, Appointments, but then some others obviously clearly were not.
0: Uh, General, as you remember from our last encounter, uh, we have these three threshold questions. I didn't put all three of them to you the last time, I don't think. Uh, Maybe I did, but we're going to go through them one more time. Uh, Most influential book, favorite movie, and favorite kind of music? Um,
1: Most influential book was Grant Takes Command, which I read during the early months of the surge. Um, A real classic in its time. Uh, And I just found so many. Sources of inspiration in the book about this greatest of US Army generals. Like, there is no other US Army general who is brilliant in combat at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. None. And I welcome anyone who wants to submit them, please forward them to me and I'll show why that's not the case. Number one is very few get to be tactical, operational, and strategic actually in combat. Um, but, so in that, but that book um, was just extraordinary. And it, it gave me inner strength. I mean, reading about Grant uh, at the first day at Bloody, at, at Vicksburg, where, or, I'm sorry, the first day at Bloody Shiloh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: his army, Sherman and he are surprised, are almost driven back into the river. And Sherman comes out of the dark and says, well, Grant, we had the devil's own day today, didn't we? And Grant says, yep, lick him tomorrow, though. Um, and so this very modest, unassuming, but just absolutely steel determination uh, individual is the one who ultimately did indeed save the union, uh, kept it together, uh, and then of course served uh, as our president as well. He had his imperfections, his shortcomings, uh, as we all do, uh, but that was an extraordinary book. Band of Brothers, I think, is just exceptional because it gets at the, the most important relationships in uh, at the most important point in someone's life, which is this that small group of individuals on your right and left who you fiercely will not let down uh, in a really tough moment in combat. Uh, this is often termed the brotherhood of the close fight. The brotherhood of yep. course now includes women who have earned the right to be there, including ones that have gone through ranger school, many dozens of them now. Uh, but that the relationships between those who are in that most elite fraternity, the brotherhood of the close fight, are captured beautifully uh, in Band of Brothers, and I, I think it's a it's a really real classic uh, in it. And own. favorite music? I actually listen to country music. Um, <laughs> I love it. You can you can understand it. Uh, it has messages and meaning, um, and I have listened to it for many many years. Excellent
0: general david Petraeus, it's been a great pleasure sir thank you so much for your time and your expertise i appreciate it very much pleasure is major thank you we'll see you next week folks the takeout is produced by arden farry jamie benson sarah cook ellie watson zoe poindexter and jake rosen cbsn production by eric Susanen, grace seekers and daniel peebles follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at takeout podcast that's at takeout podcast and for more go to takeoutpodcast.com the Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey